Hello, and welcome to Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. This podcast feed shares Socratic dialogue with invisible partners and allies, where we discuss and challenge our values and principles, and have honest discussions about the world. We hope that in doing so, we can see things outside of our plain sight with 2020 vision. Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Plain Sight. We're doing this again. Um, Haley and I had some great conversations in the fall and then things got really busy. And now this spring we're back and I've asked Andrew, Andrew Hull, who's, uh, been running PR for the company for the last, how long has it been, Andrew? Year? Uh, coming on a year. I think we're at, right at 10 months in just a couple of days. So oh, you're yeah. about to do your cliff jump. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping right into it. Yeah. You're about to become an, a shareholder officially invest some stock. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, it's it's been a wild ride of a year, uh, to say the least. But yeah, super excited to be here. So do you mind if I turn the tables a little bit and interview you? Please, please do. Okay. So first off, uh, you're a partner at Invisible, not just an employee. Yeah. Um, you're about to become a shareholder. Um, so what are your views as a shareholder on the company? Do you have a view on the stock? Uh, you know, is this a, is this a sell or a buy? Um, I, I'm definitely long invisible. Oh, why? Why? Well, I mean, we're building something amazing, Francis. Um, you know, it, I would say it took a, quite a while for me to fully get the picture of what we are doing here okay. um, at Invisible. I think like as I was interviewing with Invisible right around a year ago this time, I was like, well, man, this seems like a cool company. You know, Chris, he reached out to me. This seems like a really cool opportunity that he's presenting to me. Uh, my gosh, does this company look like something that is going to be great? But, you know, I, I kind of don't really know what I'm getting into yet. Um, all I know is that there's some excitement building within me and there's some excitement around this company. And everybody that I talk to seems to be really excited about the company. And then you know, a few months in into my time here, I start learning a little bit more and more and more and ingesting what we're doing. And uh, it's it's just amazing what we're doing, I would say, in terms of how we're approaching, you know, innovation and work and technology, and especially lately with artificial intelligence. I mean, it's just, it's really cool stuff. And I'm always really excited to talk about it. Okay, so let's get over the skepticism that our audience probably has. They're like, hang on. Um, Francis just introduced Andrew as head of PR, and he's asking what he thinks about the company as a shareholder. Obviously, <laughs> Andrew's going <laughs> gonna, gonna, to give the pitch. So uh, why don't you convince the audience that that's actually what you think? So do you remember what you were what you were thinking as an outsider looking in before you joined the company? And you're like, this is a cool opportunity. Why did you think it was cool? And then what materially has changed in the last year in helping you price the risk reward? Uh, let's assume you're a cynical Machiavellian and you just want to make money. Um, so just purely an economic shareholder lens. Yeah. What was compelling about the investment before you joined? And then how does how does the investment look a year later? Yeah. So so let's let's take stock of what I was doing as I was uh, no pun intended <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um so I was working for a company doing digital PR work and SEO this was a, a well-established company they had many different uh website brands offering uh expert reviews on different products and services cool company well established 
interesting kind of to an extent what they were doing. But at the, at the same time, there was no like level of innovation. It was just kind of like they had cracked the code of like, this is something that we can do to make money, but we're not going to like really drive the world forward, I guess, in what we're doing. Like the, the, the company motto was something around, you know, we help simplify life's choices. Just, you know, cool. This is, this is something interesting that they're doing. This is a, uh, a, a worthwhile service that we're doing. I was doing, you know, fairly interesting work there. But once I heard from, from Chris, who, who was the first person to reach out to me from Invisible, I started looking at the company website and materials, um, looking at company news. I was like, this is something that I've never heard of before. This is a, an approach to, uh, to, to business. This is an approach to, to uh, I think, probably most interesting about the company was that there seemed to be a vision that that the company was trying to uh to try to carry out and and where i saw this most francis was actually in your medium articles believe it or uh, not no. I, I i caught up on all of this um and that's when i started getting the big picture of what invisible was um how would you put it how would you put it to a friend you know you're getting drinks and you're like i'm thinking of joining this crazy company yeah here's the here's what it is here's why it's unique here's the vision because um, it's on its face. It's like, okay, is this another outsourcing company? Is this another yeah. services company? Um, is this another tech startup? Like, what is this? Yeah. How, how would I put it to, to a friend? Uh, I, I guess if I remember back on how I did put it to friends and family, mm. like, well, there's this great company. They're called invisible. I don't really know why they're called invisible, but, but I know that they're called invisible and they are blending both outsourcing and some level of automation with outsourcing to just make things happen faster. I remember somebody, somebody uh, in our company, I forget exactly who, but they put in their bio, the ultimate get shit done machine. And I was like, oh, this is just excellent. This is just a, a great way of putting it. Uh, so I remember telling, telling some folks about that. Um, I, I think that that level kind of resonated with me. And then, and then Francis, you asked me like, okay, what's the pitch now? Like what, at what point, like what was the inflection point? In, in my time at Invisible that made it seem like, oh, this is a good investment. Um, it's I think it's the fact that every single day I get, whether it's through like interactions with our operations team or learning more from, from our folks that are like more specifically dealing with AI, mm -hmm. is that I can just say, hey, can we do this? And then they're like, oh yeah, we can totally do that. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, okay. That is awesome. Like especially lately, as it comes, uh, I, I was I was drafting some some website copy, mm -hmm. and I was just like, I, I was like, I need to verify with with our ops team. Like, can we actually do this? Is there, is our company capable of doing this? And then and then I spoke to John Patricio, his his on our operations team. I said, Oh yeah, totally good. We can totally do that. Yeah. And it was just awesome. It's like this is something that's really innovative, but we can do it. Um, it, getting that experience often is is not something that you can say every day at any company. We um, we stress a lot of uh, reading here at the company. We're like always always be reading, always be thinking. You've done a lot of the homework. Um, uh, what are some of the books you've read uh, in the last year as a result of being here? Um, and uh, have they changed the way you work in any material way? There are two books that yeah. stand out to me. 
Mm. The Art of War by yeah. Sun Tzu, which mm. was a personal assignment from you, a secret yeah. mission, you called it, yes. uh, which I even got to to transcribe and, and, and kind of add to our to our own uh, company library. It was, it was awesome. Great experience. Yeah. Um, and, and then Zero to One by Teal. Okay. Uh, which is which is just fantastic. I think Art of War probably is kind of like the the one that I call back on every day. Yeah. Because uh, it, as you well know, I mean, you're you're probably Sun Tzu's biggest fan. Yeah. Um, and my gosh, like, there's just not like nugget after nugget of, of knowledge within that book. How would you uh, explain how it's relevant to a startup? Well, I mean, there there is so much strategic decision making that comes into a startup. And and I think like the the speed and the pace at which decisions are made in a, within a startup, you have to have like some sort of strategic backing, I think, in order to in, in probably strategic framework to uh, to thoughtfully engage in those decisions, uh, especially at the pace at which they're moving, mm-hmm. um, you know. Like especially as we're seeing, I, I'm not too learned on on what's going on with SVB, but as I read more, you know, it, this is a huge watershed moment for for startups to to know more about, you know, how how they're doing their baking, how they're how they're backing their company. But you know, fall ba- falling back on ancient wisdom through Sun Tzu. I mean, it's if you have some sort of framework to work off of, mm-hmm. then at least you can uh, have some level of of thoughtfulness that goes behind your your decision making in terms of strategy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um we've talked a lot about defensibility strategy yeah so um what is it not not is it not, not just what makes your company valuable to clients like what's the service you provide what are the benefits you provide but what are the barriers to entry what prevents a determined competitor who who might be willing to put millions of dollars into competing with you? What prevents them from doing what you're doing? And um, how would you put in your own words the barriers to entry that protect the company and what our strategy has been over time to create those barriers? Yeah, yeah. So we've we've done a lot of work. I know that you you fall back on on uh, the seven powers to, to create defensibility often in, in your decision making, Francis. Um, I would say that there's a lot going on internally that we're doing to create this. Um, I would say like one of the things that we're really working on now is segmentation uh, within the company so that we can make sure that we are covering all sorts of bases in terms of the clients and, and the the work that, that we're do- that we're doing. Um, I would say, in addition to that, we've just built a world-class, uh, world-class agency. Mm-hmm. You know, something that I think, I as I'm learning more about the BPO industry at large mm-hmm. and and how uh, BPOs have just a really bad track record mm-hmm. when it comes to treating their their workers, especially the you know the huge ones that employ hundreds of thousands of them at a time across the world. Um, We've done a great job, I would say, of putting ourselves in a position where we can make invisible a home for for all of the people that work for us, including our agents, which we're you know coming up on sixteen or sixteen hundred and fifty of them 
um, worldwide, which is which is incredible. Um, you know, we have we have so many people that are willing to call Invisible a long term home. They say they want to be here for five years at least, uh, and 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 we're creating such wonderful paths for upward mobility, uh, where in an industry where you know upward mobility is so limited. Um, I think like those sorts of things are aside from the strategic decision making that's going on in terms of of uh, uh, you know investments and 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 financial backing and and um, and everything like that. I mean, we, we're just building a, a machine that I, is is really caring for its people as well. If you were a client and you had a um, a BPO pitching you to run all of your company's processes and Invisible pitching you. Um, what would be the top three reasons you would choose Invisible? Well, number one, like I said, our agents, I mean, they're they're incredible. They're they're so skilled hmm. is the number one thing. Every we we have such an incredible training machine, I would say too, to for and incentives for for our agents to learn more and more. Um in in, in all of the conversations that I've had with our agents, everybody seems so hungry to learn more and do better. Um which which is fantastic. I mean, with some of the clients uh, that we have, we've heard you know you're you're creating frameworks that are better than our own. Mm. So especially quality frameworks, different things like that. So those um, that that's definitely a differentiator. Um, we I would say that we have a level of strategic partnership at Invisible that is just a huge differentiator from from other companies. Uh, with just about every client, we interface to a level where you know we want to make their processes better. We have a continuous improvement model, which means that you know over time, their processes that they're running through Invisible are getting better. They're more efficient. We're more productive. Their costs are going down as part of a, a, a baked into that model. Um, and, and then we also just have amazing technology at, at Invisible. Like I was talking about earlier, we. We can go to our team and say, hey, can we do this? This is something that we could do. And it's just really, it's not a matter of know-how. It's a matter of resources. And, and for the most part, we're able to do incredible things, especially as it relates to AI. Automation technology, we have 300, over 300 automation technologies that we can add off the shelf. Yeah, is, it's gone up to 300? I thought it was 200. Wow, I got to change my pitch. 300. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Um, okay, got it. Um, we're a remote company, um, yet, yeah, like we're, you know, we call, we call ourselves partners, not employees. Um, what's, um, uh, what is that all about? And then why, how do you motivate yourself and feel connected to the culture, even when you're not going to an office every day? Um, like, how do you? How do you feel emotionally connected to me or anyone else, the company? That, that's a great question, Francis. Um, it's it's so different at Invisible because I, I think when I tell people that we don't have a headquarters, like we don't have a physical location to go to, mm-hmm. um, they're like, "What?" Like you, it's yeah. it's such like a foreign concept to to a lot of the people that I talk to. Even after twenty twenty, even after twenty twenty, it's it's crazy. Um, and, really? and, I for some reason people just don't get to like get that aspect of what we do. Yeah. Um so how do I feel connected to people? I mean, uh I've built great relationships here without meeting anybody on our team in person yet. Can you believe Still, that? 
Still, I have wow. not met one single person. And I know that we added a partner. I think he lives just uh, just up probably 30 minutes away from me. So I'll need to get in touch with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But uh, how, how do I build relationships? I mean, we're, we're just interfacing all the time. Um, I, I get a chance to, to meet with people all the time at Invisible. We have these incredible conversations meetings on Friday where we go into breakout rooms and we really get deep. I remember a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a great conversations um, where uh, Rasanag, he, he asked us to get into one-on-one -on -one breakout rooms. And I got into a room with Manoj and part of the uh, agenda for those breakout rooms was you need, one of you needs to ask, what are you afraid to tell everybody else? And I was like, oh boy, this is so scary. But Manoj gave me incredible mentorship, even just the few minutes that, that I got to uh, that I got to connect with him. And it was the first time that we had gotten to connect one-on-one. -on -one. Um, it's just, it's just different here. And then uh, you, you asked about, about being a partner versus an employee. That's, that's such the, that's, that's the most important thread. I think that helps us to connect with the company and with each other is because we're all building towards a larger goal. Like we all have so much buy-in and incentive to perform for the company and also connect on a deeper level with, with the company that it just works. Um, it's, it's, it's a much different relationship than I've had with other, you know, past companies that I've worked for uh, than with Invisible. It's just, it's miles different. Mm -hmm. What do you, um, you mentioned conversations. So I'm, I'm putting myself in the shoes of somebody who's never heard of this ritual or tradition before. Yeah. Uh, the company has a conversations culture. What does that mean in practice? Um, uh, how does decision-making work at the company? Um, you know, uh, are you empowered to, do you actually feel empowered to think for yourself and make decisions? Um, what, uh, what is the point of the head of PR reading, reading a book about strategy and thinking of himself as a strategist? Um, yeah. why, why would, why would the company want to emphasize mindsets and behaviors like this? Yeah. Well, part of being a partner in the company is that you are expected to act like an owner or a CEO in your own specific area, mm -hmm. which is a level of empowerment that I have never seen elsewhere before. Um, but so important to that is having thoughtfulness and uh, strategy behind your decision-making so that, you know, if you're questioned on that decision-making, or if you are held accountable for that decision-making, that uh, you have good reason for doing it. Um, I, I think like as head of PR and as one of our only, uh, people at invisible that is directly working on PR, it's, uh, you know, I have to come to work every day with the mindset that, you know, I, I need to own this area. I need to really drive, you know, thought leadership and, and drive performance in this area. Everybody kind of has to have the same approach to each of their own areas in, in invisible, um, and that's, I mean, that's, that's what's so important about, uh, about, you know, knowing about strategy, knowing about reading books that, that, you know, might seem unrelated to, to your, your direct, uh, line of business. I think it's, um, 
that that common thread of acting like an owner being a partner is 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 why it's so important mm -hmm. as the company grows so we've got about 80 partners now out of 1600 people um how do we uh, and as time elapses how do you think we're going to be able to maintain the entrepreneurial culture we've built instead of just having it naturally become I'm a small part of a large organization um you know I own a small percentage of a large thing um I am part of a giant hierarchy I'm not really empowered to think strategically all the things that happen normally um why do you think that we're going to be able to resist that sort of entropy. Well, I I would I would kind of flip that back on you Francis. I mean, we've gotten fairly yeah. big in the past 8 years. How have you and that's a long time, I would say to keep up the same the same inertia of of maintaining that culture. How have you done it for so long? That's a long time. Well, I've taken fairly drastic measures. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, we created a partner pay model where um, there was a lot of extreme transparency on what people were being paid. And there was a framework and there weren't exceptions made to the framework. And um, I was willing to take a much smaller percentage of equity uh, than I would have otherwise had if I was operating um, in a normal mindset. Um, I was willing to sort of take a ton of dilution and, and have a lot of really strong talent because in the early years, we didn't have a lot of cash to pay people, but we wanted world-class people. And we knew that the currency of last resort was the company stock. And so if we gave people stock in the company, we were making a bet on labor instead of capital being the fundamental driving force behind the company's success. And if you want world-class talent, you know, and you, you got to give them world-class incentives. So that partner model has evolved over time. You do end up with physics. It becomes harder and harder to own 1% of Berkshire Hathaway. Um, so to keep the company entrepreneurial and innovative, we're creating business units to allow entrepreneurs to work, to be a large part of a small thing instead of a small part of a large thing. And so... Um, everyone's going to have some amount of equity in Berkshire Hathaway on top, the, the holding company. But um, for you, for example, if you're part of Impossible, uh, Infinity is the name of the holding company. So if you're part of um, Infinity's marketing business unit, uh, Impossible, which is basically marketing as a service, and we're thinking about all of the processes that power every marketing team in the world, every marketing agency in the world, every PR agency in the world, and we're not only providing marketing as a service to Invisible, we're providing marketing as a service to the whole world. Um, and you've got a stake in that. And you can be incredibly entrepreneurial about that go-to-market, that roadmap, that, that product direction. That should give the whole partnership model uh, uh, a... Uh, Re renewal effect where it should that recycling mechanism as um you know has the ability to like create unlimited upside and maintain that unlimited upside uh environment i think 
the Charlie Munger quote, show me the incentives, I'll, I'll show you the outcomes. Show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcomes. Um, incentives, incentives, incentives. Incentives work, incentives drive behavior. And um, usually people start out with idealism. And then over time, their behaviors become increasingly mercenary, rational, cynical. Um, and the best of both worlds would be to maintain the romanticism, but also make sure that the incentives align with that. So that even if you are feeling cynical today, <laughs> you still do the right thing. Um, and so I think that the only way to overcome the physics of a large organization is to split the large organization up into many smaller organizations. Yeah. 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 That makes total sense. Um, I, I think that, that the partner model is going to be so crucial and is, I would say is probably one of the more important aspects of, of what's maintained this momentum, um, that, that makes us so culturally strong. Um, I look there at, at different companies, there's so much talk about culture. I, at invisible, there is so much like action about culture. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, you hear it so often. It's so ingrained in us that I think it's, um, it's, it's where it really takes shape is in, in, and I, I don't see it going away. There's just something uh, special about come it. Come on, you're creating such a rosy picture, but like, let's be real. Let's be real with the audience. Like, um, you've had, I've, I've yelled at you before. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've seen, you've seen me, uh, be, you've seen me not on my best days. You've seen me on a worse day before. Like you've seen, um, uh, leadership failures, uh, here before, you, you know, you're painting such a rosy picture that it's almost like there's no problems with this company um, and everything's perfect. So uh, to your point, you're right. Culture is not just about a bunch of words on a page on the website. Culture is about like what the, it's actually like every day at the company. Yeah. Um, uh, why don't you talk, if you're comfortable talking about it, um, with the lived culture and some of the the things you feel like we're, we're learning and evolving through and like why you believe in that evolution instead of why you feel like um we're working through our issues instead of ignoring our issues yeah yeah well i mean if you feel comfortable talking about it we can talk about the incident let's yeah, do it sure. yeah go for it um so so that was you know there there was i would say a lot of failure on all sides and i think you mentioned that that you know we saw the worst of you well you probably saw the worst of me you probably you, you probably saw me clam up Whereas, you know, um, the, the culture of the company ought to dictate that, you know, I could either push back or, or we could just engage ferociously if we needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, the, the lived culture is, is the, the culture here is something that is, it, it is evolving and that's okay. Um, I, I think like in that specific instance where um, we, we had tried to get a podcast venture off the ground. And there was just lack of communication, I would say, from, from every side and last, lack of listening, I think, from, from each side as well, uh, that created this long-term problem that prevented the podcast venture from, from going live until now, which is, it's almost yep. a year later. Yep. Um, and, you know, you, uh, y- you had an angry reaction to that. And yeah. it was scary. It was, 
<laughs> it, it was, um, and, and not in that, like, I, I felt. Let, let the I audience do it. Like, I basically sent an angry email that threatened to fire a bunch of people that yeah. was basically like, what the heck, you know, it's, we're a startup, we're supposed to, our main advantage is speed. It's taken nine months, like, uh, something is clearly wrong. Um, and it was not a pretty email to read. I'm sure. I'm sure. What, what was it like for you to receive that email? Uh, it was, uh, is one of those where like your, your heart sinks, like, oh, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. like one of those, oh no, sort of yeah. things. Um, yeah. and, and it's because I, you know, I, I care about this company. I care about being here. And so like, you know, I, I didn't want that to be, um, I didn't want that to be the end. Um, even though, you know, I, However, I like. However, I felt about the email. I I thought it was a bit much to be <laughs> to be honest. Frankly. Yeah, it was a bit much. It was. It way, was way beyond a bit much. Yeah. But but let, let's talk about the reaction. Mm -hmm. uh, so we we have a a company tribunal. I would say, however, <laughs> we want to call it the arbiters yeah. that that reviewed the email, that reviewed the correspondence. <laughs> reviewed it's, it's not a it's not a tribunal. It's. Uh... It's a check and balance, especially on, on, in situations where uh, I or other other leaders or executives feel like we've lost objectivity, so that partners of the company have a neutral body to appeal to to like weigh in on matters where you know. And so this is a situation where I was I was clearly angry, and I asked I asked for help. Yeah, yeah. I I can tell you I didn't believe in the arbiter's system at first. Um, yeah. In fact, I, I might not even be fully convinced yet um, until I, until I really saw it work out in practice. I I think my initial reaction was, um, oh, so so I get to be kind of like pitted against my my peers. Like this is these are these are folks that that know me, yeah. um, but but maybe they aren't in full context. Maybe maybe they don't fully know like all the different things that I'm working on. So so at at first I was um, I think I kind of rejected the idea, Francis, um, yeah. and. I'm more of a believer in it now. Uh, after I saw, it, not just because the outcome was was I think good for everybody, but um, but I, you know, I I think it's um, it, it's such a new system. I was like, it. I, I think that's why I might have been a, a new system to me, at least in a corporate environment. Uh, yeah. That I, that's I, I might have been a, a bit averse to that at first. Um, that's yeah. that's kind of how I felt. Yeah. For context usually the executive branch of government is the only branch of government in a company. Right. So um, I find myself in, I found myself for many years being like, why am I the judge jury and the executioner here? You know, like, shouldn't there be uh, a second or a third body here to counterbalance on certain situations? And, um, and so um, there, this was a situation where, um, having a group of advisors, board members, and others like take a look and and provide a neutral uh, assessment of the situation was um, really clarifying. Um, the uh, but yeah, it's just like anything. Um, no no system, no governance system is perfect, yeah. and trust trust gets built in the institution over time, um, and so. Uh, a good example of trust being built in the institution is when trust goes down in a person, does the trust in the institution still hold? So this is a situation where, you know, um, uh, 
you probably, at least for a while, probably lost trust in me. Um, and then hopefully the the system repaired that. What 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 um what was the what was that experience like? Like you you um having trust be shocked or shaken or damaged and then going through some sort of repair. Um the uh yeah, like what um what were some of the lessons or experiences there for you? Yeah. Um you know, I I think a lot of what I was feeling was oh man, I wish I could just like fast forward a month just to like see how things are and and yeah. just kind of like I I think to be, to be quite honest Francis, a lot of a lot of my my feelings might have been like avoidance. Yeah. And just kind of like, you know, I just want to just let this all go and, and, and everything will be okay. Yeah. Um, I, I think really more than anything, Francis, like the, the healing function was just kind of like time. Time. Yeah. And, um, you know, getting, getting a chance to see how your mindset and emotions evolves throughout that process and yeah. then experience how mine evolved throughout the process. And then, getting a chance to hear how others reacted during that process. I think all of those different things were really important. And then also I, I took it actively took a passive approach. Um, which was, <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice turn of phrase maybe, but yeah. um, it's uh, I, I just kind of took an approach of, I, I'm not going to engage directly here. I'm going to just kind of like, let time take its course and, and which, which was a scary thing by itself because, uh, you know, there were so many times where I was drafting up emails or drafting, like thinking about giving you a phone call uh, and just being like, you know, let's just hash this out right now if we need to. Um, but no, in, in reality, I think, um, getting a chance to, to watch, uh, you know, your, your self-reflection was so important to me and, and, um, hearing an apology from you, getting a chance to sit down with you later on, I, I, after a couple of months, I would say, yeah. um, it was just important. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. One of the reflections for me was just the classic, um, uh, blame is a double-edged sword. Like as, as soon as you think the problem is with other people, you know, you're not looking at probably carefully enough on your own side of the equation. So I ended up realizing that although I felt like I was a victim of, of, of the situation and I was blaming my team, I ended up reflecting on tons of decisions that I'd ultimately made that created the outcome that I didn't like. And once I decided to start taking responsibility for that, it became much more, um, it became obvious to me that like, there was nobody to blame, but myself and I need, and and also that the solution was going to come from me taking responsibility. So, um, it's amazing how perspective can shift. Um, and also, frankly, it's a relief not to feel the need to be perfect all the time. That's uh, right. And to just realize that like building a great company is naturally sets you up for a lot of high pressure environments and situations where things get messy um, and emotions get involved. And for me, it was actually really important as an exercise in like 
being able to sort of fail and still have still be forgiven by my team. Um, and so I don't know what, what that experience was like for you and, in, in uh, um, working, seeing, seeing your leader, uh, fail and then still, still giving me a pass. I wonder what that was like, but I appreciate that you ultimately forgave me. Well, of um, course, um, I, I did want to ask you a question that I think is related yeah. to that crisis. Um, because wh- when I was reflecting on on that whole situation, I was just like thinking to myself, you know, this is probably a case where, you know, emotions and pressure just kind of boiled over. Yeah. And, and that's a totally valid thing to happen, especially to someone who yeah. is ex- experiencing as much pressure as you are. Yeah. Um, curious question that's that's related. If you could put a percentage on it, how much time per day are you spending actively thinking about invisible, actively thinking about the company? You know, it's hard to just like think about when I'm not yeah. uh, thinking about the company. I, I'll give you an example. There was a moment last spring where I designed an entire financial instrument, which we've now used. Um, in, <laughs> uh, I designed a financial instrument on the dance floor in my head, you know, on a Friday night with my friends, um, listening to a DJ, they had no idea that in my head, I was like going term by term and thinking through all the incentives that needed to be designed and like why this, why this instrument hadn't existed in the market and why it needed to exist and why it was a perfect solution for us. And then on Saturday morning, you know, sober the next day, I like write it up and I share it with like all the advisors who know much more about this area than me. And they like validated the thinking and they're like, this is great first principles thinking. How did you have this idea? (laughs) And, And so it's a good example of, you know, from a what's on my Google calendar point of view, it's clearly like a personal night. It's Friday night. I'm with friends. I'm dancing. I'm doing something I love, which is like dancing to a DJ. Um, but I'm, I was clearly working. Um, so it was a very high value at moment. I I have such a blurry line between personal and work. When you look at, and this is actually one of the tricky things that has been a big reflection for me in all of this is um, I haven't fired a, an executive um, since December, 2019. And we are 40 times the revenue size that we were at that time. And um, it's not because there haven't been many controversial decisions along the way. Um, uh, it's because our converse, our partnership culture and our conversation uh, ritual, uh, which is to talk things through. Um, we have a disagree and commit culture like Amazon, but there's a lot of skill involved in actually disagreeing implies having conversations. Um, and then the committing implies trust. And it's, it's a, uh, um, it's tricky when, when you look at the partnership, I look at that list of partners and I'm like, these are my friends, right? Um, they're not just my colleagues. Um, they're not just my, you know, people that I manage. I don't think of it that way. I think of it, these are like friends. Um, and when you're doing a lot of business with friends, I mean, you look at our client list, I look at the clients, I'm like, these, these are, a lot, there's a lot of friends on this list. And I look at our, our advisors who are most of whom are now investors and uh, there's a lot of friends. And so it just makes 
the work environment like a pretty, you know, it, it just adds a layer where you're like, um, uh, am I expected to be perfect, right? And make no mistakes and um, never get angry or never have an off day or never make a bad decision or um, whatever. Uh, and so I, I also feel like the natural, the human nature is, uh, you know, uh, human nature will, will make us actually avoid having hard conversations. And it's so important to like lean into the hard conversations but that also means there's like an ego death in being willing to not be perfect and not be quote unquote professional all the time um, and show the human side of the equation. So I don't know uh, if that answers your question, but it did. And thank yeah. you for sharing the story of the dance floor. I think yeah. I was thinking that is the most on-brand story I've heard about you. Probably. <laughs> it's just perfect. It's perfect. Here's right. a question for you. Yeah. Uh, as ChatGPT is like uh, commoditized commodity writing, um, and there's so much noise out there, you know, um, when I look at most marketing materials for most companies, I just disc my discount rate on any statement is like 99%. I just assume they're just like giving me the party line and telling me whatever they, whatever they think I need to hear in order to buy their stuff. Um, so as a marketer, how on earth are you trying, are you getting signal out through the noise? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, you know, interestingly, I I've found chat GPT to be such a fantastic tool to help kind of play that game. Um, and, and not, not so much to create noise, but we've, we've discovered that it is an incredible tool for SEO, for creating content that, uh, that helps to rake for, for search engines and, and helping to, to loop in keywords that, that help with, uh, search visibility. Um, it's, it's been a boon, a boon to our, uh, to our content strategy. And, you know, in the meantime, we've had to take a really close look at, you know, all of our competitors out there and, and take a close look at, at the kinds of things that they're trying to, to sell, um, which is, is so, uh, that, 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 that at times, you know, closely aligned with us. Um, this might be a point where we need to edit uh, I, I'm, yeah. I'm not giving the best answer here. No, no, no. Uh, I feel like it's don't edit it. Editors don't edit. <laughs> um, uh, I actually think this gets to gets to like uh, the the kernel of it, which is um, what is the most difficult to communicate concept that you're experiencing as a marketer about invisible. So yeah. I think about some of the best marketing campaigns ever had to were breakthroughs in explaining some sort of nuance, right? So like the Apple versus PC ads, um, people didn't understand why Apple was so successful in the early days. You know, when when their products were beating PCs in say the early two thousands, everybody was like, "I don't get it." Like people are paying more or a less good product. And they would say less good because they were looking at the specs. So they'd say, look, this PC has, um, you know, 
higher processing power or more RAM or, um, you know, a bigger hard drive or whatever, and they'd be looking at the product spec. But then all the consumers were buying Apple because Apple had like a profoundly better user experience and like overall, um, uh, yeah, overall operating system and, and ecosystem. And as a marketer, I'm sure it wasn't easy. And then they did those ads and that, that clarified suddenly, oh, there's, it's something fundamentally is different about this thing yeah. uh, that doesn't show up in the spec list. Um, what, what concepts or single concept has been the hardest thing for you? And you could just be very open about the challenge that you're facing as a marketer. Mm -hmm. um, what's been the hardest concept? The fact that we have so much capability, we can almost do everything. Yeah. But how do you explain that to somebody who needs one thing? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. so so putting myself in the shoes of of somebody who's like receiving our email communications, for example, um, they might be thinking, you know, and, and this could be a problem with with segmentation through the lead list, whatever. It's they might be thinking, wait, so Invisible does lead gen, and then wait, they they also do you know customer support, and they can build me a chatbot. And yep. like, if I want to build like this large language model, like they can help me with that too. Yep. And, oh, wait, they, they do back office. Like, yep. but, you know, it's, they're like, is this company just, you know, feeding me just crap? Like, they're, are they just trying to tell me what, what I want to hear? Or can they actually do this? The answer is yes, we can actually do that. But, but how do you communicate, you know, that capability is, is in a way that's not vague yep. in a way that's not like. You know, I one of my favorite lines of yours, Francis, is you know, what what if you had a magic box that could do anything? That's yeah. invisible, right? Yeah. Great line, but you know, how does that resonate with somebody who is you know needs one thing, one very specific thing, or has one yeah. very specific pain point? It's um, it, it doesn't resonate as much. You know, it's they they need to see specifics. So I, I would say that that is probably one of the bigger challenges that we're running into in terms of marketing invisible is that. We have so many capabilities uh, that it's it's hard to, you know, communicate that vision and that capability in, in a way that that resonates to everybody. Yep. Let's talk uh, about ChatGPT diluting words and the power of words. Um, and by the way, I'm not. I don't want to be negative about ChatGPT. I'm just just bringing up an issue that most yeah. marketers have thought of which is that SEO already sort of polluted the internet, you know, like there's just an infinite amount of blog posts that were written without much thought. And right. uh, I, I just feel like many, many English teachers, elementary, high school, college, English teachers, just churning in their, turning in their grave, you know, <laughs> um, being like, uh, you know, this we've created incentives for like infinite bad writing, you know, where it's instead of focusing on quality, we've just mass produced quantity. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, the power of words, you're, you read Sun Tzu's art of war. That's a, a text that is 2,500 years old and it has traveled through time because scribes said these words are so important that they should be preserved. And it's not that long. It's 13 chapters. It is such a good example of massively high quality, massively high signal words that broke through all the noise. So as a percentage, 
of all words ever spoken or all words ever written. It seems like, you know, very small, but yet these words survive and they keep surviving and they're likely to survive for another hundred years or 200 years, et cetera. So do you feel like as a brand, we are capable of generating words that matter um, in an age of content proliferation? You know, if, if it is an arms race, and generative AI can create images and music and words, and every brand is incentivized to like produce as much, you know, marketing content as possible and reach as many people as possible. Have words lost any sacred power? Well, that's a good question, Francis. I mean, if, if you think about it, before generative AI really became a thing, I think it could be argued that more word, well more strings of words mm. were being created than ever still before mm. generative AI came about. So if you go back to what, 2015, you know, probably more words had existed out in the ether, more combinations of words um, and, and content had existed than ever before. And then we're just building on that. And then generative AI is, is just gonna, you know, 10X that, 100X that, 1000X that, infinity X that. Mm. Um, are, are we diluting the, the power of words. I see, I, I'm so pro generative AI in chat GPT that it's, it's hard for me to have <laughs> kind of like an unbiased point of view on this. Um, I, I will say, you know, those tools still need an editing function. There still needs to be, um, you know, in the, we're, we, we, on our marketing team, we've really embraced AI tools, um, both, generative AI in terms of of, uh, of words, but also with art design. Um, but they still need editors. They still need thoughtful editing to, to make them cohesive, to make them not not so repetitive, different things like that. Um, I, I'm not so worried about it because I, I think, you know, the, the true artists that are that are pushing forward language in in the most powerful ways are still going to do it. They're not those same types of people are probably not the the types of people who are going to be you know brain drained by generative ai or ai tools i think that the art is still going to exist and then also like i think that the texts like the art of war the texts um that are like the eching the ones that have really survived um they're not going away they're just kind of being uh they're being collected and they're more accessible than ever, which is, uh, which is the great part. So no, I, I would say I'm, I'm long AI for that reason. I, I'm not, I'm not worried about our future with, uh, with generative AI. Yeah. And as a knowledge worker yourself, what do you think AI will never replace that you do, or you have the ability to do? Um, I don't think that AI will ever be a good storyteller. Um, wow. I, I just, I don't, I think that AI can, as best it can, try to mimic storytelling. Um, I don't think that AI will ever be able to glean the emotion or evoke emotion in a way that that human writers can. Generate a truly perfect myth. Um, right. when, as a student of myth, when you study a myth, whether it's David versus Goliath or Orpheus and Eurydice um, or um, uh, any of the the great myth stories 
Thor, Thor and the Midgard serpent, uh, Christ and the cross, etc. These stories are perfect. They, they're like, if you try to take a red pen and edit it, like you actually walk away being like, I can't touch this. It's, it's the more I understand it, the more it is archetypally psychologically so complete um, that if anything was changed, something would then need to do this again to like hold down this space. There would need to be an, maybe an identical story in a different setting. Um, like if Romeo and Juliet was never written, Romeo and Juliet would have needed to be written. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and this hero with a thousand faces, Joseph Campbell, you know, um, insight is very interesting in an era of chat GPT because like, well, maybe Romeo and Juliet, um, isn't going away, but now we can generate a thousand Romeos and Juliets, right? And if you actually look at the almost infinite number of TV shows on Netflix or HBO or Amazon Prime or whatever, the um, uh, most of them are just the same old plots that you're already familiar with. It's yet another action movie, yet another uh, rom com. It's just a different different cast of characters. Yeah, um, and so. Are you sure AI is never, you know, uh, uh, never going to be able to create stories? Um, why are you so confident? Well, that's a that's a good question. I I agree with you. You know, the content that's be create, being created for like TV and movies, and, and film, it's, I mean, it, it all, a lot of it seems to follow a formula. Um, you know, plug in this into the algorithm, and this is what you're going to get out. You know, you're going to get another action movie that that looks just like the last one. Um, I mean. You know, if 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 that's the road that human writers are going down, then then yeah, that might be scary for uh that for for what the future holds for for generative AI. I think for for the most part though, I I view generative AI and AI in general as a augmentative tool, a tool that helps people get things done. Um, a tool that helps writers get to the next step in their story, whether it's, you know, organize this thought for me, you know, get this, um, you know, give me, give me five different outcomes for, for this, you know, element of the plot. It's just, I think it's a tool to hone actual writing, human writing. And, and that's where I think, you know, being a, a strong prompt engineer, which is a concept that's, that's becoming more and more, uh, more and more in the zeitgeist it's the the that's kind of like the next frontier you know maybe the the next great writers are going to be the next great prompt engineers that are able to to leverage ai to, to help them create even better stories i i don't think that ai is going to totally replace the human writer like i don't think ai is going to totally re replace the 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 human painter or the human um artist it's a digital artist, whatever it's, I, I think it's just a, a tool in the toolbox. Yep. The wizard and the wand, mm -hmm. the, the Iron Man suit and the person inside the Iron Man suit. That's right. Um, as a final uh, gratitude exercise, as we end the show, there's the, there's Andrew Hull on zoom and on WhatsApp and on email and on Slack and, and all these digital environments. But then there's the rest of your life that I don't get to see. Um, and so um, who in your life has most supported you in the last year that you've been at the company that you'd like to thank? And what, what, um, 
what role have they played for you that has been, you know, supported you to do your best sort of knowledge work when you're in front of your computer and behind a screen? Yeah. Yeah. I would say two people. So number one is, is Chris Chavez. He's, he's been my, my manager. Um, you know, I I've said about Chris before, I like, I would follow him into battle. Like there is just, he, he's been such an excellent mentor. He takes so much time out of his day to, uh, to help me as, as an individual and help me push me along in my career. And, and as, as, uh, in terms of skills, I, he's always there to chat, like just as a person, he's, he's been incredible. And then the, the second person would just be my wife. Um, she's, she's been there for me this entire time. She's the one who encouraged me to, to make this leap and, and jump over to invisible. Um, she's, she's the one who's kind of been here with me every step of the way to hear my thoughts about, AI or, you know, hear about the exciting things that I'm working on. Um, somebody has a sounding board to talk about, hey, you know, what? I'm explaining invisible in this way. Does it make sense to you? Does it not make sense to you? Um, anyways, yeah, so that, that would be my wife, Kinsey. Well, thanks to Kinsey and thanks to Chris. And thanks yeah. to Andrew. Thank you for this amazing conversation. I really enjoyed it. And it was amazing to hear your thoughts. And thanks for not putting me on the spot for once. <laughs> Thank you, Francis. I appreciate it. All right, buddy. Looking forward to many more conversations. Thanks. All right. Hey, thanks for tuning into Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. And if you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.